Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When Diplomacy Fails presents Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails A project five years in the making The Franco-Prussian War The Seven Years' War Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon The Crimean War to When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War One, Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. This is the fifth part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered look at the Wars Against the French, which originally aired as a three-part special from the 25th of July to the 5th of August 2012. Welcome back to the wars. Last time we examined the Peace of Amiens between Britain and France, and how a number of issues eventually compelled Britain to resume the war. Thus slighted, Napoleon attempted to resume his invasion plans, and knock Britain out of the war for good, but he simply didn't possess the capabilities. Sensing a level of weakness, Britain sought a third coalition based on a firm Russian commitment, and the apparently tireless optimism of the Austrians. While Britain hoped for a victory, Napoleon aimed for the jugular. Let's see what it all led to. I will now take you to 1805, but before I do that, just a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you, well, it's not really brought to you, but a reminder that this podcast is in fact on Patreon, and if you would like to support this podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or going to wdfpodcast.com and clicking on the Patreon banner, then I would super appreciate it, and you yourself could avail of some pretty sweet goodies from extra audio content to wonderful merchandise, to just my general appreciation and immense gratitude. Taken together, all of these things can ensure that 
podcasting, when diplomacy fails, and everything else that goes along with it, will be safe well into the future. And perhaps someday I can give up my job and give up everything else and just become a full-time controller, leader, and defender of when diplomacy fails. Anyway, whatever happens... I want to thank you very much for supporting us so far, and I want to thank you again for continuing to listen to this special remastered look at pretty much everything When Diplomacy Fails has done. I hope you're enjoying this fifth birthday party of When Diplomacy Fails and our new take on Napoleon, because I think that it's been coming for a very long time. When Diplomacy Fails is where history thrives, and it's thanks to you guys, thanks to your support, whether you're befitting, patronising, or simply just listening in and downloading it in the first place, that I'm able to hold that mantle and lay claim to it as the place where history thrives. Thanks very much, in fact, and I'll be talking to you soon. Enjoy the episode. Death is nothing, but to live defeated and inglorious is to die daily. Napoleon Bonaparte Following a drought and terrible feelings of loneliness, Britain found that it had allies on the continent again as spring 1805 dawned, and British agents set about coordinating some form of wider strategy against France, with Austria and Russia forming the brunt of the one-two punch. On the 26th of August 1805, the nature of the war had changed. Despite the aforementioned failures of the launching of a full-scale invasion of the British Isles, Napoleon had maintained a force near the Channel ports to keep the British occupied. Recognising that the continent was again arming against him, Napoleon sent these experienced legions against his European foes on that date, thus lifting the sense of dread in Britain for the moment. These veteran soldiers were shifted instead to the Rhine, the theatre where Austria and Russia were most expected to strike. France was joined by Bavaria at this time, a long-time German ally of France, if you remember back to some of the previous wars, on the 18th century and how the princes of Bavaria often threw their lot in with France, then, well, this shouldn't really come as much of a surprise. Austria invaded Bavaria on the 8th of September, 1805, in response to its signing of a treaty directed against Austria, and in response to this, France declared war on Austria on the 23rd of September, 1805, and this signalled the beginning, officially, of the War of the Third Coalition. It will be characterised by the most famous battles of the Napoleonic Wars, and, in the case of the Allies, matters got off to a devastating start from the early stage. The first domino to fall was the Franco-Spanish naval strength, though, which was shattered by the British naval victory at Trafalgar on the 21st of October of that year. It was a loss which crippled the naval capabilities of Napoleon's empire, and guaranteed British safety from invasion. The additional security was achieved just in time, because from late September 1805, the French launched a series of strikes into German territory and smashed straight into Austrian armies. On the 22nd of September 1805, the French launched a massive encirclement of the Austrians and put the cherry on top with the victory at the Battle of Wörtingen. Austrian soldiers were reeling, but Napoleon wasn't finished. He capitalised on the seemingly apathetic nature of the Austrian defence to achieve victory again at the battles of Halzach, Jungingen, Elkingen, and, finally, Ulm on the 14th of October. The Austrian soldiers were demoralised and began surrendering in droves, leading to a panic in Vienna. The Russians then began to make their presence felt, as their armies reinforced the Austrians and thus bolstered their confidence. The months following this saw the Austro-Russian force hold the line across the Danube from a determined French advance, which was no small feat, 
and they continued to wait for the main French attack. The result was the climax of French campaigning and arguably Napoleon's most famous victory, Austerlitz on the 2nd of December 1805. So total was the victory that Austria sued for peace on the 26th of December that year with the Treaty of Pressburg. The treaty was a double blow for the Austrians. Not only were they defeated again by Napoleon, but this time more concessions had to be handed to France than ever before. Bavaria and the Kingdom of Italy, another French satellite state, received Austrian territory in the Tyrol and Baden regions, while the Confederation of the Rhine was set up as a buffer in northwest Germany. Through these transferals of land, Napoleon had essentially reordered the state of Europe and recast it in his own image. The Confederation of the Rhine in particular was a momentous event in German national history. By uniting a series of previously small German microstates, Napoleon had awakened the idea of German national unity and togetherness like never before. Yet the Kingdom of Italy also comes in close second. Napoleon ruled over this kingdom, forged by war, to bind the Duchy of Milan, the Duchy of Mantua, the Duchy of Medina, the western part of the Republic of Venice, part of the Papal States in Romanga, and the province of Navarra, together in one kingdom, with Napoleon as its king. The new constitution of the state stipulated that the throne would fall to Napoleon's successors, and that the crown would be wedded to France, so that Napoleon was Emperor of France and also King of Italy for over a decade. The polity was one of the most remarkable client states of Napoleon's, forbidden from trading with the United Kingdom. Napoleon regularly pawned off some states to it over the course of its decade in existence. In time it would prove, like the German case, a blueprint of later Italian ambitions for empire, particularly with its inroads into Illyrian provinces also claimed for France, but during our timeline it was a convenient buffer to guard against the regular Austrian invasions. Perhaps even more significantly than the Italian and Confederation of the Rhine examples though, this age of German and Italian unity came just at the time of trauma in Austria, where the Holy Roman Emperor, Francis II, was forcibly abdicated, ending the Holy Roman Empire for good. Words can't describe the significance or really do justice the significance of the event. With a stroke of his pen and a dash of his sword, Napoleon had dissolved one of the oldest and most iconic institutions in the world in the process ushering in the end of an era. Perhaps at the time few Europeans realised the gravity of what had befallen them. Could they comprehend the fact that the Holy Roman Empire, for so long a staple part of European relations, culture and statecraft, was now gone, replaced by its successor state of Austria, which was itself now beholden to France? This was perhaps the most striking result of the peace, the fact that Austria paid so much for it. With the disappearance of the Holy Roman Empire came the beginnings of modern German states united by nationality, such as the Confederation of the Rhine, which brought the critical German states along the Rhine together in a kind of precursor to the modern German nation-state. To the Germans, so long defined by their relationship with the Emperor, it was apparent that they now had a new master, and they were no longer part of the Holy Roman Empire. This new master was Napoleon, and his new empire was centred on the most triumphant iteration of France in historical memory. With Austria defeated, Napoleon could turn his attention fully to Russia on the continent. But while the Austrians, Russians and French had fought in Germany, events had also been unfolding in Italy, specifically in the Kingdom of Naples. 
The defeat at Austerlitz spooked the Russians, who had been partly guarding Naples along with Austria and Britain. The Russians evacuated, the Austrians followed, and the British followed them. With no one guarding it, Naples was open for a French takeover, and a general Messina invaded the Kingdom of Naples on the 9th of February 1806. Ferdinand IV, the incumbent Bourbon king of Naples, fled to Sicily with the British fleet and watched as his kingdom fell to France. By the end of March, the entire Italian peninsula was under French control and Napoleon installed his brother Joseph as king of Naples. A small thing to consider was the issue of the ongoing guerrilla war waged by the Neapolitan nationals once their nation had officially been defeated. It was in the kingdom of Naples, rather than Spain, that the first example of guerrilla warfare occurred, and it was the French failure to fully contain it for the rest of the war, and the mirroring of tactics which the Neapolitans made use of, that made the French experience in the Peninsular War all the more difficult. But Napoleon spared little thought for a negligible campaign on the edge of Italy. He was riding high at this stage, having once again defeated a coalition sent against him in Europe. Only Russia and Britain now remained from the Third Coalition. In fact, Russia did not make peace as Napoleon hoped it would, though a peace treaty was offered and nearly made it through in July 1806, only to be vetoed by the Tsar himself. Russia was still grappling with the challenges posed by Napoleon's regime, and the Tsar maintained the war as much to stamp out the ideas of the French Revolution as he did to prevent Napoleon from lording over Europe. Similarly, Napoleon knew better than to ask Britain for peace at this stage, even with the death of their most prominent statesman, William Pitt the Younger. Pitt had left behind a strong desire to carry on the war, as the peace party in Britain was largely stamped out under a combination of fear and anger directed at Napoleon, who was at this stage master in Europe in every sense of the word. The British government could have floundered through a lack of leadership and a shaky sovereign, but the fates dictated that Britain would have a succession of moderately capable men following Pitt the Younger, which for London was a small mercy amongst the other disasters. In scenes reminiscent of other wartime emergencies in British democracy, the so-called Ministry of All the Talents was the result of Pitt's departure from politics. Formed by Lord Grenville, who had recently been Minister for Foreign Affairs, the aim was to overcome political leanings and form the strongest possible government with which to combat Napoleonic France. It was not an easy task. Grenville himself lasted only a year in office to be succeeded by another blast from the past, the Duke of Portland, who had been Prime Minister all the way back before Pitt began his legendary stretch as Prime Minister back in 1783. Portland maintained that he wanted to keep the unity going, but the likelihood of cooperation in the bitter political sphere was an activity above the abilities of British statesmen in the early 1800s. He was the acceptable figurehead to lead the fractured political British scene, as the supporters of Pitt returned to prominence. He would die in office, and his peer, Spencer Percival, succeeded him. Percival holds the unenviable distinction to have been the only Prime Minister of Britain to die from assassination, but his government was fragile from the beginning, and failures in the Netherlands, which will come to, blighted his record before his assassination in 1812. Grenville's order of business, while he was there, was to keep up the pressure on France. Yet even while Britain choked France at sea, Napoleon was still confident that another campaign would force Russia to sue for peace, and that the nations of Europe could then focus on strangling Britain instead. 
Napoleon planned to use the kind of strategy utilised by Germany in the First and Second World Wars, that of cutting Britain off from its trade and perhaps starving it then into submission. Napoleon had no submarines, but he did have something else, a continent effectively under his control. His plan was to establish the continental system, an agreement by as many nations as possible to not trade with Britain and isolate it financially and diplomatically in the process. Through such a plan, France could starve Britain out of the war, as British forces were far from in a position to take the fight directly to Napoleon at this stage. Napoleon was just letting the ink dry on this plan when a curious thing happened. The Prussians attacked. When historians attempt to unpack the reasons why Prussia made the decision to attack France, while French troops were littered throughout Germany and Berlin could only call on the distant Russia and Britain for... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. They normally conclude that the decision was both an immensely foolhardy one, especially considering Prussia's neutrality during the previous coalition, and that it had been brought forward by the Prussian War Party, which somehow managed to persuade Frederick William III of Prussia that declaring war against the all-conquering France was a good idea. When the news came of Prussia's declaration, Napoleon no doubted some concerns that Russia would give aid, but it was doubtful that the Russians would, since after 1805, the Russians had been an effective non-entity in Europe, despite remaining at war with France. Notwithstanding the fact that St. Petersburg had yet to mobilise for the new campaign, Even as Napoleon had been filling Germany with troops since the previous spring and could easily turn them up north if he wanted, no Russian response would be felt until the winter. In the past, Franco-Russian relations had been cool, but also somewhat cynical. Napoleon had eased Prussian anxiety before by promising at Hanover, which it had occupied since 1803. But when Prussian diplomats found out that Napoleon had been just as willing to offer Hanover back to Britain in exchange for peace... Berlin was mightily offended. Added to this was the creation by Napoleon of the Confederation of the Rhine in July 1806, which was a group of 16 German states that stretched across the Rhine, and which included states that Prussia had its eyes on before. So the situation because of these various problems seemed bound to escalate. 
in the Third Coalition, Prussian anger had been the result of a French incursion across its Ansbach territory, while the French were en route to destroy the Austrians at Austerlitz. Berlin's anger, though, turned to sweet nothings when it learned that its potential allies had been given such a bloody nose and forced out of the war, though the Russians, of course, remained as the dormant, mostly ineffectual entity for much of 1806. The question of the Prussian War Party normally revolves around Frederick William's wife, Louise, and her position in Prussia atop the War Party. Influenced by these figures, and by the divisions within his own cabinet and amongst his generals, the Prussian king found himself swayed over the course of summer 1806 to declare war against France, finally making the decision to mobilise in September of that year. To Frederick and his advisers, the presence of the French and their allies so close to their borders, and the absence of any practical allies save the Saxons and the Swedes, the latter of whom played an underrated role in the Fourth Coalition, but would also fall to the combined efforts of France and Russia by 1807. Saxony would also be bribed out of the war by Napoleon, who promised its duke the joint rule of the Grand Duchy of Warsaw, which he was on the verge of creating by late 1806. Napoleon had a favour for keeping a bit of continuity around, as he would have known full well about the penchant Saxon dukes had for simultaneously ruling over Poland in the 18th century. To ask why everyone apparently believed that war was such a good idea mostly misses the point. It is important to remember that Louise of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, a small German duchy of little consequence, but which had been occupied and incorporated into Napoleon's Confederation of the Rhine, spoke for Prussia on the basis of its past glories. In other words, Louise felt she had to push Berlin towards war because such activity was in line with Prussia's past actions. Think Frederick the Great and his wars. Honour played a large role in convincing Louise that rash action was necessary, and it should be added also that just because we know Napoleon to have been on an absolute tear by this point, doesn't mean that all European states by 1806 believed him to be invincible. Had Louise known what was to come for Prussia, it is doubtful she would have acted or spoke as she did, but bound as she understood it by her duty to her country's reputation and prestige, to Louise it was a necessity that a country with as proud and decorated a military history as Prussia would challenge the might of Napoleon, just as Frederick the Great had challenged the might of Austria, France and Russia all at once in his time. But of course, this wasn't the same Prussia, militarily speaking, that Frederick the Great had once led, and that France was a different animal to anything that had existed in military terms by that point, and that Napoleon Bonaparte was a military genius on a level that could only be described as era-defining. But these were facts that were above the imagination of either her or her war party allies. So it was that Prussia declared war on France on October 1st, 1806, to the disbelief of Napoleon and the hopes of all the enemies he had so recently crushed. It is important to remember that alongside the psychological and stately interests which motivated him, Frederick William III was bound by strategic concerns as well. Though he had come disastrously late to the party, it would be naive to suggest that honour motivated Berlin above all, and that they hadn't winced as Napoleon redrew the map of Europe to their detriment. As Prussia considered its sphere of influence to reside in Germany, the creation of the Confederation of the Rhine was a major snub in their minds. When we break it down further, we can see that the issue of Hanover also caused a rift between the French and Prussians. As you'll remember, Napoleon had been willing to trade it back to London in exchange for peace. The Prussians felt mightily slighted by this, it has to be emphasised, and they remained peeved at Britain for laying claim to the state of Hanover in the first place. Though Britain's royal family still had an undeniable link to that German state, and, in fact, to Mecklenburg-Strelitz as well, 
It had been a drain on British resources for some time, while it had also played havoc with British strategy makers, who over the 18th century had tied themselves in knots in their efforts to protect Hanover. If Britain had perhaps enabled Prussia to claim the territory before, however difficult it may have been for George III, Prussia may have joined the previous War of the Third Coalition, and perhaps, as some historians speculate, prevented the disaster at Austerlitz. In the event, Prussian historians see the disastrous period of time between late 1806 to 1814 as a period of immense shame and humbling of the Prussian state. As Prussia collapsed under the lightning campaign set in motion by Napoleon, despite the Prussian declaration of war, it was Napoleon who had the initiative from the get-go. His soldiers were at hand, his experience was immense, and the news he disseminated amongst his soldiers, that only the wily Prussians had prevented them from returning home that autumn because of their treachery, served to inspire the French soldiery to fight on the understanding that their work was nearly done. Operating as though on a strict timeline, everything fell apart for Prussia in October 1806. Two shattering losses at the Battle of Jena-Auerstedt, which were two equally important battles that happened to occur on the same day, the 14th of October 1806, these virtually removed all Prussian resistance, while subsequent cleanup campaigns culminated in the capture of Berlin itself on the 27th of October. Napoleon Bonaparte actually visited the tomb of Frederick the Great on the 28th of that month, and demonstrated a level of respect while in the presence of such a critical Prussian ancestor, who in fact had only died a generation before. Certainly though, while the gesture may have been appreciated by the Prussians in a morbid sort of way, Napoleon surely recognised that he had bettered Frederick the Great by miles, having defeated the state of that great strategist in less than three weeks. While Napoleon was likely in a certain state of awe while visiting the tomb, and while he certainly respected Frederick's accomplishments, there is little doubt that Frederick the Great would have been turning in his great grave had he seen the rapid speed with which his once dominant nation collapsed to France. Many of the Prussians who remained retreated along with the royal family to Russia so that they could fight another day, but there was little doubt as to what Napoleon had just done. He had outdone himself again. I should probably point out that this period is referred to as the Fourth Coalition, but because Prussia is the only new state in it, and because Britain and Russia never really enter their war with France, a case could be made for this just being one big coalition of gradually reducing effectiveness, but in any case, the historically termed Fourth Coalition had now been brought to an abrupt end. Significantly for the German theatre, shortly before Prussia had been completely destroyed, Saxony turned tail and signed an alliance with France, incorporating itself into the Confederation of the Rhine in the process. The war had given Napoleon a chance to properly exert his influence over Prussia, and Berlin became a non-entity in Europe as a result, with all focus now moving towards what Britain or Russia would do next. What, if anything, could these unlikely allies do to slow Napoleon down now? It should go without saying that at this point in France, Napoleon Bonaparte was experiencing the highest heights of his popularity. Peace had been made with Austria and Prussia, and peace looked possible soon with Russia too. Britain was of course in the back of every Frenchman's mind, how it would not give France peace, how it continued to bring coalitions into being against her, how her navy sniped from the sidelines. But so long as Napoleon's success continued on the continent, there was little cause for concern as to what the ships of the Royal Navy would do. And continue it did. Napoleon didn't stop moving after defeating the Prussians. He moved into Poland in late 1806, which was in turmoil after an uprising against conscription there, 
had rendered the Russian defence non-existent. The only very recently annexed Poles, just over a decade before in 1795, remained hopeful that their once comparatively liberal Commonwealth would be liberated from the Russian, Austrian and Prussian chains that bound it, and Napoleon offered them hope for such a future. Before he left to go and finish off the Prussians once and for all in East Prussia, and hopefully take on the Russians further east, he left his indelible mark on that part of Europe. Napoleon made a promise to his new Saxon ally, Frederick Augustus I, that once deals with Russia and Prussia had been sorted out, France would create a duchy of Warsaw in the lands once owned by the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. This concerned the King of Saxony because Napoleon planned on unifying the two crowns, as they existed at the start of the 18th century, which we saw in our War of the Polish Succession episodes. It was an ambitious plan, of course, but Napoleon saw it as a solution similar to that of the Confederation of the Rhine, i.e. by creating a buffer in enemy territory, in this case the troublesome and complicated East, he could guarantee the security of France. It was an added bonus that Napoleon was able to extend his influence to the East of Europe in the process, and create a ready army of Poles loyal to Napoleon for giving them a measure of freedom in their new statelet. After creating the foundations for the Duchy of Warsaw, Napoleon ensured its security by pursuing the Russians all the way to the east, defeating their forces or what was left of them, and forcing Frederick William III to sign a ceasefire on the 25th of June 1807. Thus achieved, Napoleon brought the Duchy closer into being by stationing troops in Warsaw and incorporating more Poles into his army, thereby ensuring that Eastern Europe remained as secure as the West. With Prussia determinately out of the war and the Fourth Coalition officially on its last legs, Napoleon then applied himself to the Russian issue, and he went on to defeat the Russians in the famous Battle of Friedland on the 14th of June 1807. This route persuaded the Russians to sign the equally famous Treaty of Tilsit on the 7th of July 1807, which created, officially, the Grand Duchy of Warsaw as a statelet, ruled by the now-allied Duke of Saxony, while Prussia signed its own version of that treaty on the 9th of July, and gave up much of its previously annexed territory to the Poles in the process. So, after all that, conquering, annexing, and victorious triumphing, it should come as no surprise to learn that Napoleon was in his beast mode by this stage, in a series of lightning campaigns, he had defeated the Russians, the Prussians, and created, really, the Duchy of Warsaw. He had peeled off Prussian territory and created more French satellite states out of it, bolstering the Confederation of the Rhine and incepting the often-forgotten Kingdom of Westphalia, where another one of his brothers was installed as king. Furthermore, he also managed to defeat Sweden in a few short skirmishes and cooperated with Russia in late 1807, to force Sweden into the continental system. This continental system was perhaps the most important part of Napoleon's sense of long-term strategy with respect to now dealing with Britain, as his enemies fell all around him, whenever they made peace with Napoleon, was the unconditional joining of this embargo league against Britain, which grew to incorporate most of the continent. In the case of Russia, Napoleon managed to secure the Tsar's declaration of war against Britain itself. What a turnaround it had been for Napoleon. Now after peace was made on the continent and only Britain was left, the people's adoration for him grew to dangerous levels. Napoleon was the hero of France, and for the fourth time, he had taken the best Europe could throw at him and he had won. Not only had he won, but he had established a new order in Europe, 
France was surrounded by satellite states. It was more secure and more powerful than it had ever been in its history, while states such as the Grand Duchy of Warsaw, the Kingdom of Italy, the Confederation of the Rhine, the Kingdom of Westphalia, and even the Batavian Republic, they owed their existence to Napoleon and his revolutionary policies. With peace coming as easy to Napoleon as war apparently did, the French people had even greater cause for jubilation. Their country's successes ensured by fearful rivals and great vassals, only Britain remained against the juggernaut which Napoleon had established. Now, at his highest point, it seemed only logical to bet that Napoleon would go higher. He waited for the continental system to establish itself firmly, and continued to pressure Great Britain to make peace. It was around this time that Napoleon, perhaps with a clouded judgement after so many glorious successes, made his first critical error. He got involved with Spanish politics. On the 27th of October 1807, the Spanish Prime Minister signed the Treaty of Fontainebleau with France. The treaty guaranteed free passage of French troops into Spain, which would enable them to attack the British ally of Portugal, and in return for allowing the Spanish troops access, Napoleon promised Spain much of the overseas territory of Portugal's colonial empire, mainly in Brazil. In return for British promises of aid to its Portuguese ally, Lisbon was to hold out against Spanish pressure, and it refused to join Napoleon's continental system, a major sticking point for the Supreme Emperor. Thus slighted, Napoleon planned to orchestrate a joint campaign with his Spanish ally, orchestrated solely against the Portuguese. It looked on paper like every other campaign, but upon taking it on, it soon became clear that this Franco-Spanish venture would forever change the nature of the war. And this is a fact we will learn in the next episode. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.